First Corinthians chapter 4, but as we begin chapter 4, I want you to know that this is actually a continuation of the thought we find in chapter 3. So I want to recap chapter 3 first and then uh, sort of show you the flow of thought here. Paul begins chapter 3, if you want to take a look at chapter 3, by saying that the Corinthians are a bunch of babies, and it's about that strong. Uh, He essentially tells them, grow up, grow up, you Corinthians. And it's really, when you read it, it's really kind of startling to hear him say it. And he writes pretty bluntly, and he says this, I'm going to paraphrase it, you Corinthians are not very mature. You think you're spiritual, but you're not. You're carnal. You are like spiritual babies in Christ. When we first met, you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. But you were so immature that I could only feed you milk and not solid food. It's like saying to them, I had to bottle feed you while I was there. And I stayed with you for 18 months, bottle feeding you. And here we are four years later, and you're still babies in Christ. Why? It's because you haven't grown up. You have taken sides against each other, just like children do on the playground. And you're filled with envy and strife and divisions. You've taken sides against each other, claiming that your side is better than their side, and their side is better than the other third side, and you're all in a mess. You're acting like little children. It's like the childish game that's my dad is better than your dad. There was actually a commercial that was about dogs, but the, the original thing was my dad's better than your dad. Why is my dad better than your dad? Well, my dad's stronger. Well, my dad's got a bigger car. Well, my dad's got a bigger house. Well, my dad's something else. And that's what they were saying. They were saying, look, I'm of Paul. I follow Paul. I do all the things that Paul does. So he's a great man, and I'm a great man because I'm a follower of Paul. What are you? Well, I'm a follower of Peter. And because Peter's a great man, that makes me a great man too. Well, who are you? I'm a follower of Apollos. Why? Well, because Paul, Apollos was a greater man. He came after Paul. He taught us things that Paul didn't teach us. And so he's even better than Paul. And this division and debate is immature and juvenile. And in case we believe that this childish, carnal behavior ended at Corinth, we have to ask ourselves, do we do the same? You know, it's really easy, and I find myself doing this too, to go to the book of Corinthians and say, oh yeah, it was a pretty weak church. (laughs) They had all kinds of problems in that church. Good thing we're not like them. You ever find yourself thinking that way? Or you go to other other chapters, other, other books of the Bible, oh yeah, well that was a pretty messed up church. Glad we're not like them. It's the same attitude. It's the same childish carnal attitude when we come to the scripture that way. Rather, we should come to the scripture and say, Lord, what are you saying to me today from this passage? Because you would not have taken the pains to, re- to, to preserve the scripture in this way if it wasn't meant not just for the Corinthians, but for me too. 
Anytime believers begin to think of themselves as a superior group of Christians because of who they associate with or because of the group that they belong to, they are acting just like the Corinthians. They're acting as children. They are carnal. We may no longer boast like they did of being of the Paul party or the Peter party or the uh, Apollos party, but the moment we think that we are better than other Christians. We're really putting down other Christians, and, and we are filled with boastful pride. We are just like the Corinthians if we have the attitude that if another Christian is not part of our group, then they are second-class Christians. After all, our group is the best. Everybody else is second-class When we think of ourselves or our group as superior, this is spiritual arrogance, and it has no place in the Christian life. It undermines the unity of the church, and it defies what Jesus taught in John chapter 13, which is this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another." By this, by what? By our love for one another, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the arguments against Christianity today, and it's an argument that I have tremendous trouble answering. There's a lot of questions I can answer quite easily from the scripture, but one argument is very difficult for me, and that is this. Why are there so many denominations? Why is Christianity so splintered? If we have the truth, why are there so many denominations? Difficult question to answer. This childish behavior continues to this very day. And it shows that we are carnal, that we are not spiritual when we have this attitude. Well, you say, do Christians really act this way today? I mean, of course they did in Corinth. They were, you know weak church. Do they really act this way today? Anybody ever hear of the Lutherans? They're followers of who? Luther. Has anybody ever heard of Calvinists? They're followers of who? John Calvin. We actually nearly had a split in this assembly because of men who felt superior than others who didn't follow Calvin. The Mennonites, followers of who? Yeah, Menno Simons. The Methodists, although they're not named after a man, they're named after the methods of John Wesley. And there is also spiritual pride among the brethren. Somebody had to say it. We like to say that we follow no one but the Lord. Yet the greatest divide in the Brethren movement came as a result of a man named J.N. Darby who stood up against the elders of Bethesda Chapel over a man they received into fellowship. That is actually what split the Brethren movement, a movement that really God had raised up at a time when it was, was really a desire of these men, including Darby, to get back to the basics of the Word of God and to follow it with all their heart. And over 
the method of bringing somebody into fellowship or receiving somebody into fellowship, uh, Darby actually helped to split the church. And the division among the brethren has lasted now for 169 years. Same split, same issue, same issue. I remember reading an article in an encyclopedia many years ago where almost the entire article and focus of the article was on splits that took place in the Brethren movement. Here are some of the words from that article. This is how they're describing the Brethren movement. Disputes. Something that split the Brethren. They suffered further divisions. The exclusive Brethren followed Darby. There it is again, following a man. There are at least seven, seven separate groups, and it goes on like that, over split, split, split. I think, if, if my memory serves me correctly, they've changed the article now, but I believe that the original article came out and it said, brethren, known for their divisions. Wow. It's really striking at the heart, isn't it? It's as if Paul is writing to the brethren and not the Corinthians. You pride yourselves in your spiritual maturity, but you are spiritual babies, he says, filled with envy and strife and divisions. Paul foresaw how divisive this kind of thinking was early on in the work at Corinth. Too bad the brethren did not. So in chapters 3 and 4, Paul uses four figures of speech, four distinct illustrations to show the Corinthians how foolish it is to continue on as babies in Christ. And next week, Howard is going to wrap this up, uh, the section up with Paul warning the, Christian, the Corinthians that if they don't straighten up, he may have to come back to them like a father and apply the rod of correction to the seat of learning. Or maybe this simple, simple rebuke would be enough to correct their bad behavior. All right, the first illustration was found in chapter 3. And it's the illustration of a farmer. The goal of the farmer is what? What is the goal of a farmer? Anybody can answer. What is the goal? Grow food. Grow food. Produce fruit. That's it. So if I can borrow a few lines from a children's nursery rhyme, because Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you're acting like children. Okay, well, let me talk to you like children. And this nursery rhyme goes something like this. God the Father had a farm, E-I. E-I-O. And on his farm, he had a Paul. E-I-E-I-O. I don't know what that means, E-I-E-I-O. I looked it up and it was not very clear, quite honestly. <laughs> Paul planted here, he planted there. Here he plants, there he plants, everywhere he plants churches. God the Father had a farm. E-I-E-I-O. God the Father had a farm. E-I-E-I-O, and on his farm he had Apollos, E-I-E-I-O. Apollos watered here and he watered there, here he watered, there he watered, everywhere he watered churches. God the Father had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. What is the point Paul is making? It's not E-I-E-I-O. <laughs> the illustration is this, why would you divide the church by forming an exclusive party around a planter? Why would you divide the church or form a denomination around a waterer? Neither he who plants, verse 7 of chapter 3, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, 
but God who gives the increase. Both the planter and the waterer are one. In others, they are united. Both Paul and Apollos and Cephas are one. They have one purpose in mind, and it's the same purpose the farmer has in having the farm in the first place. It's fruit, fruit that endures. Both the planter and the waterer are one. They are working for the same purpose. They have the same desire. One is not greater than the other. There would be no farm without a planter. There would be no farm without a waterer. And there would be no fruit at all if God did not produce the fruit from the planter and the waterer. So to claim to be a follower of the planter or a follower of the waterer is just plain childish and carnal. For the planter and the waterer work together, and each one will be rewarded by God for their individual labor. So the question for the Corinthians in this illustration, and for us, is not who are you following, but what are you personally doing to water, or to plant, or to water, or to produce fruit in this uh, farm, working together, okay? Second illustration, also in chapter 3, is of a, of a builder. Paul calls himself a wise master builder, and he says, uh, Michael brought all of this out last week, that it was Paul who laid the foundation, and the foundation is the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as he taught them, he taught them about Jesus Christ, his work, his work on the cross, his work in saving people, his work uh, that he carries on today as an intercessor for us. And Paul laid the foundation. But when we laid the foundation of this building here, it's all underneath us right here, okay? All of it's underneath us. You don't even see it. What you see now is the building on top of the foundation. But the building needed the foundation. The foundation is not the entire building. To complete the building, we need builders to build upon the foundation or else the building will never be complete. And so Paul is saying, look, I laid the foundation and everyone who comes after me as a teacher, everyone who comes after me to help you in your walk in the Lord is building on that foundation. And some of the names of the builders include Apollos and Cephas and Timothy. And through the generations, there were more builders who carried on the work and the construction project. We may know some of them by name, Martin Luther or John Wycliffe. We would not have our English Bible had it not been for the work of John Wycliffe. We cannot forget Charles Spurgeon, Dwight L. Moody, George Mueller, C.H. McIntosh, William Kelly, John Bellett, Sir Robert Anderson, and then the next generation after would produce other builders like Harry Ironside, C.I. Schofield, John Wolverd, William MacDonald, builder after builder built upon the foundation that was laid by the Apostle Paul. And today we have more builders, including John MacArthur, Warren Wearsby, Noad Shapiro, Howard Ormsby, Michael Long, Matt Clark, Luke Robertson, and so on, all building on the same foundation. The building is not complete yet. But we need all of them. They're all builders. They're all building on that same foundation. There is no building without a foundation, and there's no foundation apart from Jesus Christ. But all of us are working toward the same goal, the same purpose, and that is to complete 
the whole edifice, the whole building. There is not one builder who is greater than the other. The difference is not who is doing the building, but what their choice of building materials are. Your choice of building materials include gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, Paul says. Which type of building materials will withstand the test of fire, which is the judgment um, at the judgment seat of Christ? Right now, as we prayed, um, Hurricane Irma is um, barreling across the state of Florida. Before I left home this morning, I saw areas that are flooded, uh, a lot of structures that have been subject to her furious wind and rain. Millions of people have fled to higher ground or even to other states. And I'll tell you something, if I was there right now, I would not want to be in a building made of wood, hay, or straw. And you may remember the story of the three little pigs and the huffing and puffing and all the rest of it. Well, this is a huge hurricane, larger than the state of Florida. And the kind of building materials would make a huge difference to me um, as far as which building I would want to be in during this time. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying here, too. That the, the judgment is not going to be a judgment of wind and rain. It's going to be a judgment of fire. And the wood and the hay and the, um, uh, the wood, hay, and uh, straw will all be consumed in the fire. God will test the building materials that we use as we teach, as we preach, as we minister to the Lord. The, the method of our teaching and preaching, how we teach and how we preach, what we say is all going to be judged. If we have been true to his word and we've accurately handled the word of God, then our work will be tested by fire and it will survive the test. But if we've chosen to build with flimsy materials, our work will be consumed, though we ourselves will be saved as by fire. If your teaching ministry, as you speak to other people about uh, spiritual things, if, if you focus on the Lord, the person of the Lord and his work, those are good building materials to work with. Okay? But if you're focusing in your ministry upon yourself and upon your thoughts and you know, your favorite themes and all the rest of it, there's a question as to what you're using um, in your building materials. If your teaching is about yourself, your cleverness, who you are following, your envy, your strife, your divisions, you pretty much have wasted your life and your ministry if that's your focus of attention. You'll be saved, Paul says, but your service and work will be burned up because it really wasn't for the Lord. What would we do without a proper foundation that Paul built? We would not have a good building structure. What would we do without builders who use the right materials? I think today, as you look at Christendom, those who profess to be followers of Christ, there's a mixture of good and bad materials being used. And know for certain that the Lord will consume those materials that were not um, gold and uh, quality materials. All right, so as we look at this, we now come to chapter 4. 
This is the third illustration in chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So this is actually illustration 3 and 4 together. I'll take them um, apart. So illustration number 3 is this. Let a man so consider us, that is Paul, Apollos, Cephas, as servants of Christ. Well, if you've been at Calvary long enough, you've heard um, messages on service or servants. And very often the word that is used is diakonos. That's the Greek word. And it, it really is the word from which we get our word deacons. And deacons, in their truest sense of the word, in uh, the original use of the word in the Bible, had to do with men who served tables. And so David and Daniel have both uh, worked in restaurants where they serve tables. They've been waiters. And um, that's the kind of picture you need to think about. What does a person who is a waiter do? They wait on tables, like at the ice creamery. They are servers, diakonos. It's a good job. And if they do, do well at the job, they have done well at the job, they get good tips too. So there was some benefit to being a good server. But that's not the word used here. It's a different word. Same word in English, servant or ser- uh, service, servant. But in 1 Corinthians, the word is different. And I'm no Greek scholar, so I'll butcher the way it's pronounced in Greek. But it's something like this. Hupairetes. Who cares, okay, how it's pronounced in in, uh, Greek, right? But it's an interesting word all the same. The word means under rower, an under rower. And that would be a term that the Corinthians knew. So if you can remember back a few weeks ago, I mentioned to you that um, the section where Corinth was located, the land section, is called an isthmus. It's basically a very small four-mile stretch of of land with the ocean on both sides of it. Corinth was a port city, so on the western side of the isthmus, uh, Corinth was located. And um, ships would come into Corinth's western port, and they would uh, be stationed there. The the people at Corinth and, and in that whole isthmus decided that it was safer to haul the ship out of the ocean, drag it across the four miles of land to the other side of the isthmus, because if they had taken the journey down around the bottom part of the peninsula at that point, um, it, was, it was treacherous seas. Many ships were lost. And I think I mentioned to you that people would say that if you're going to, ship, if you're going to take a ship that way, make sure you write out your will before you go. Or something like I heard uh, the chief of police say, um, or not chief of police, but one of the, um, he's an army guy that said this last night to the people who stayed behind in, um, in places where they should have evacuated. He said, do one thing for us. Write your name on your arm so we know who you are when we pick up the carcass. <laughs> wow, that's pretty strong. But that's the way they felt about taking a ship down below the peninsula here. And so they decided that a more creative way, saving lives, was to to drag the ship out of the ocean, haul it across the four-mile isthmus to the other side, and then put it back into the ocean again. 
And so you have to imagine, these were not ships with great big motors or engines in them. These were ships that very often were sailing ships, or they were ships that had sailing uh, you know, masts, but they also had rowers for places where you know, there was no wind. So if, if you have uh, ever seen shows where you have these guys you know, sitting on a bench with an oar and they're rowing, and what would happen is somebody would shout out a command, row, and they'd you know, all move in unison and they'd all row. So those were the under rowers. When ships came into port, Corinth was probably filled with men who were under rowers. These were strong, young men who had but one job to do, and that was to faithfully pull their oar each time the captain issued a command. An under rower was one who was stationed in the belly of the ship, and he was equipped with one oar. And he only had one job to do, pull that oar. His sole duty was to listen to the captain to issue the order to row, which was followed by a drumbeat from a drummer. And with each sound, each oarman, each under rower would take his oar and he would pull on it and the ship would slice through the water. These were men under authority. They were servants, but they all worked together for one common cause. That's what an under rower did. Paul used that word when he said servants. That's what he's referring to here, under rowers. We are under rowers. Our captain is Jesus Christ. And when our captain issues out an order, no one thinks of one oarsman being better than another oarsman. We are listening for his command. No one picks favors. Oh, I like that oarsman because he makes us go faster. No, he doesn't. He does the same thing everybody else does. We all have to work together if the ship is going to get to its destination. And by working together, we serve our captain. There is no place for division. There is no place for lone rangers. There is no place for pushing on the oar when you should be pulling on it. We are under rowers of Christ. Is that how you view yourself? That you are working together for the same common cause of getting this ship to its proper destination. We are serving with other believers with the same goal of serving Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, the fourth illustration is Paul describes himself and the others as stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul says, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is a house manager. It's a person who oversees butlers and maids and possessions of the homeowner, and he's required to do his duty as if he is the master himself. If the master issues a, a um, command or he says, look, I am putting you in charge of my household, then he is to represent the master of the household. And he's to do it as if he were the master. And so Paul is saying, look, my duty, my responsibility is the same responsibility as Apollos or Cephas or anybody else who comes after me, and that is to faithfully 
serve as a steward of the mystery of God. You know, for centuries, God kept to himself some closely guarded secrets. And when it came time to reveal these secrets, God chose men like the Apostle Paul and told them the secrets. They're called mysteries in the Bible. And a mystery is something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed by God. And God entrusted these men to faithfully tell others what he had told them. Paul says, we are stewards of those mysteries. Well, we now know those mysteries. They're no longer mysterious. They've now been revealed. And um, we are also preachers of the mysteries of God. Some of the mysteries include the mystery of the gospel, that God would save sinners on the basis of grace, not of faith, uh, not of uh, works. The mystery of his will, the mystery of Christ dwelling in us, the mystery of the fact that not all of us will die, but we will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. These are mysteries that have now been revealed to us. And they were entrusted to stewards who have passed them on to us. We have in our possession the very word of God. We are not to water down this word. We are not to speak just from our favorite passages or support false teaching by yanking verses out of context or twisting and turning the scriptures to get our own ideas across. The book is God's book. It's his word. It's truth. And as ministers of the word of God, we have been entrusted with a stewardship. That's why Paul says next in verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. We can use one criteria to judge another man's ministry, another person's stewardship, and that is this. Is he faithful? That's it. Is he faithful? As ones who minister the word, I must and you must be careful to teach with accuracy the word of God. I am not preaching my opinion, my wisdom, my views. I am preaching the oracles of God. I am to study the word. I am to preach the word. I am to be diligent to present myself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know that God holds faithfulness at a premium. It is especially pleasing to him because he records it wherever he sees it. There's a lot of unfaithfulness, but God records faithfulness. And think of some of the faithful men and women of the Bible. There was Daniel. Uh, Daniel, or Darius, set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these, there were three governors. And Daniel was one of the three governors. And each one of the satraps might give an account to them so that the king would suffer no loss, it says in Daniel 6. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. 
nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not judge, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of God. Wow. I hope that that's what people can say about us. Did you catch what he said? They said, there's nothing we can find in him that's faulty. We can't find fault in him. So let's make a law so that he breaks the law of God. I mean, it'll be against the law of God uh, because Daniel won't break that. In other words, he's so faithful, he would rather suffer the consequences of a law we impose rather than break the law of God. Wow. I, I, that would be great if that's what people could say about us. Think of Joseph, who was faithful when his master Potiphar put him in charge of the stewardship of his household, and Potiphar prospered. Joseph was faithful in prison when he was imprisoned under false accusations, and everything put in his hands succeeded. Joseph was faithful to Pharaoh, and everything in Egypt was put in his hand, and he saved not only Egypt from famine, but the surrounding nations as well. At the end of the day, Joseph could say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Joseph remained faithful to the Lord. Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 17, uh, was faithful. I think of the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. A beautiful thing that is said of her. She was, if you look at her whole story, she's faithful in all her ways. But it says specifically, and the heart of her husband safely trusts her. That's faithfulness. What about us? Are we faithful? Are we faithful in our service for the Lord? Matthew 24, 45 to 51. I'll just give you the reference. You can look up it later. And the Lord talk, talks here about a, who is a faithful and a wise servant. Uh, very important passage to read. Paul emphasizes what is important to the Lord. It's not the size of our ministry. It's not the number of people who follow you. It's not the, the degrees after your name. It's not the accolades that people uh, give to you. It comes down to this one thing. It's required of stewards that one be found faithful. So Paul continues his reasoning. If it is required of stewards to be found faithful, can I really judge another man's faithfulness? And the simple answer is no. And Paul addresses that next. In 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, it says this, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So what he's saying is this. No one can can properly judge another person's faithfulness in ministry. Now, I know I am and we are quick to judge. Um, you know, as we look at other people, we go, well, you know, that's not very faithful. That's not very good or whatever. We, we judge other people all the time. You don't, I do. But most likely... We are wrong in our judgment. The quality that the Lord is looking for is faithfulness, not cleverness, not education, 
not wealth, or even what appears to be success in ministry. Many people have an appearance of success in their ministry, but they're not faithful to the Lord. It's not our job to be the judge and jury of another man's faithfulness, however. It is God who judges. So here the judgment that Paul is speaking about is not whether a person is saved or not saved. That's not what he's referring to. This is not um, guilt or innocence. Really what it means is that God is the one who investigates, who questions, who evaluates. And we will be judged based on his evaluation in that day. Not now, that day is still coming. But even if we had our day, Paul says, in a human court right now, even the wisest judge would be unable to determine the faithfulness of God's servants. It's impossible for a judge to do that. It's unfortunate, but anyone who serves the Lord will likely be judged by others. And so don't be surprised if you serve the Lord and you're criticized for your service. The Lord himself, in his earthly ministry, was considered to be crazy. The prophets were mocked and beaten, and many of the saints have been rejected over the years. So don't be surprised if others criticize you in your ministry. It's bound to come. Judgments come all the time. But don't let that discourage you. Because the people who are judging your service are not your final judge. The Lord Jesus Christ is the judge, and at the judgment seat of Christ, he will assess your service for him, and his determination will be final, and his evaluation will be altogether right. Whether people criticize you or they praise you, don't let that mess with your head, okay? Criticism can mess with your head and say, I just quit, I give up. And praise can also mess with your head. Because you can think that you're better than you are, that you're more faithful than you are, that what you did is greater than it is. It's impossible for anybody to completely and perfectly evaluate your ministry, your motives, and your faithfulness. Paul even admits that we are unable to judge ourselves. You say, well, let me think about my own ministry. Let me judge how I've done for the Lord. Yeah, well, I hope I don't break my arm, <laughs> you know, as I pat myself on the back. We tend to be like that. But we can't judge our own faithfulness with any accuracy. There is something built into human nature in which we always assume that whatever we do, whatever we think, it's absolutely right. And it's just not true. Paul says here that we are not good judges of our own faithfulness. If we were to review ourselves, you know, if we had a Yelp page about our ministry... And we were to go on our own Yelp page, uh, Yelp page and, and uh, review ourselves, we'd give ourselves a five star every time. You know, two thumbs up. But will the Lord Jesus Christ offer us the same ranking, the same rating? We are not good judges of ourselves. And if we can't even judge ourselves properly, how can we think that we can judge others effectively or properly? We can't. Paul said he was not conscious of anything against himself. In other words, he's not aware of any unfaithfulness on his part. He wasn't claiming uh, sinless perfection here, but only that in his ministry, 
He believed that he was faithful in what he was doing in all things, but he says, look, I, I'm not even a good judge of myself. Be why is he saying that? Because he knew just as much as we do that our hearts are deceitful and wicked. We're going to put ourselves in the best light every time. But will the Lord Jesus Christ do the same? Our own personal evaluation of our ministry is kind of pointless because the final evaluation rests with Jesus, not with us. God's star rating is the only one that counts. So before we jump to any uh, faulty conclusions about our ministry or about the ministry of other believers, recognize that today is not the day of judgment. Okay? So if you find yourself beginning to criticize another man's ministry, another woman's ministry, bite your tongue. Today is not that day. And the second thing is, you are not the judge. Paul says that in that day, God will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. The hidden things of darkness, a lot of people think, oh, that's sin. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about sin here. But rather, things that are completely unknown to us. Things that are hidden from us. How can we possibly judge other believers when we don't have all the facts. We don't know the hours of preparation that a brother has put into a sermon or that a sister has put into a Bible study. We don't know what it cost another believer to, to serve the Lord in an unassuming ministry behind the scenes. We don't know the hours that that brother or sister has spent in prayer. We don't know the sacrifices of time and finances they have put forth to serve the Lord. We don't know the spiritual battle that a person has gone through mentally or physically, emotionally or spiritually in order to serve the Lord. How can we possibly judge another person's ministry when we don't have the facts? We simply don't. These things are hidden from us. They are not known. They are hidden in darkness in the prayer closet, in the study, in private. But God who sees all will bring to light what it took for you to serve the Lord or for me to serve his people. He is a faithful judge and will judge faithfully. And I love the verse that says this, God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love and how you have ministered to the saints and do minister. In his judgment, it will be a faithful judgment, and it will include all of the facts. Only the Lord knows what you've endured to minister. He alone knows the counsels of your heart. In other words, he knows every struggle you have gone through in your mind and your heart as you have wrestled with the word of God and how it applies to you first and then to others. He knows the spiritual battle that is often waged in your mind, and it might include doubts and questions and concerns that have plagued you through lack of information or through the attack of the evil one. And he sees every breakthrough that you have enjoyed as you've come to the word and you've said, Ah, oh, Lord, now I see. You are faithful. Your word is true. I will trust in the Lord. He sees it all. None of you have seen that in my private life. None of you. That is something between me and the Lord. But the Lord sees it all. 
And all of these secret musings of the heart will be revealed in that day. And when that day arrives, the only thing that we will be longing to hear are these words from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. It is required in stewards that one be found faithful. That's what the Lord is looking for. Let us constantly strive to be faithful in our service for him. Okay, verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively, figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. These things, brethren, I figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos. What things? Well, the four illustrations we looked at. The farmer, the builder, the under-rower, and the faithful steward. You Corinthians, he says, need to stop acting so childishly. Paul and Apollos and Cephas are not divided. One is not better than the other. We are workers in the same field. We are building the same building. We are under-rowers serving the same master. And we are all serving faithfully the same master. We are faithful stewards. Why don't you do the same? That's essentially what he's saying. We are not competing apostles, so stop your arrogant and proud attitude about how spiritual you are in following one or the other. Go back to that children's game. My dad's better than your dad. My dad's got a bigger car than your dad. My dad's got a better job than your dad. My dad is more educated than your dad. This is childish thinking. You know what I found, though? It's interesting. When men and women, Christians, follow uh, certain people or they like to kind of name drop, I often like to say, well, I, I follow, let's take an example. He was close to us. I follow William McDonald. I often think to myself, really? In what way do you follow William McDonald? In what way do you live sacrificially like William McDonald did? In what way are you following William McDonald, or I follow so-and-so, or I follow so-and-so. It's, it's this pride that if you just name drop, you become like that person. No, you don't. No, you don't. And that's really what Paul is going to address next. He's saying, look, you're saying I'm of Paul. Well, in what way are you following me? Because I don't see it. I'm of Apollos. Really? I don't see that either. I'm of Cephas. In what way are you following Cephas? Because I don't see it. That's what he's saying here in this next section. And so he goes through a series of rhetorical questions. For who makes you different from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, you think you're better than any other Christian? Really? Who apart from you thinks you're superior to any other Christian? You have all been redeemed by the same Lord. Your sins have been forgiven by the same blood. You have all been bought at the same price. Why do you arrogantly believe that you're better than anyone else in this church? That's what Paul's saying. It's scathing. Do you possess superior intellect? Do you have more money? Do you have a better job? So what? So what? Everything you have 
has been given to you. For the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, the same Father who is the Father of us all. His choice of how he dispenses his gifts has absolutely nothing to do with you and gives you no right to boast audibly or in your heart about how much better you are than other believers. Then, with what appears to be open sarcasm, Paul rebukes them. And he could be easily speaking to the name it, claim it, prosperity gospel churches today. He says, you are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. This kind of teaching leads to arrogance and pride. Paul says, you're already full. They prided themselves in being rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. Shouldn't be boasting along that way because the Lord rebuked the Laodicean church for that attitude. They had an abundance of spiritual gifts. They were wealthy and they were blind to the needs around them. They had lived in the lap of luxury. They had begun to put the crowns on their head as if they were reigning already on the earth. And Paul says with deep reflection, I wish you did reign. Because if you were reigning, and it really was the millennium, and you were reigning on earth with Christ, I would be reigning too. But that's not the way it is, folks. This means you think you've already entered to the millennium where we will reign with Christ. I wish it were so. And then I would be reigning with you. I wish the millennium were already here and Jesus Christ were given his rightful place. Paul, without saying it, they thought they were rich and increased with goods in need of nothing when in reality they were wretched, poor, blind, and naked. The fact is that on earth, Christ is still rejected. This is not reigning time. And Paul reminds them that this is not the time to be reigning. We are following a master who is still rejected. So we'll end with these verses. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Let me stop there for a second. Again, let me ask you the question. If they truly were followers of Paul or Apollos or Cephas, they certainly weren't living like it. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst and we are poorly uh, clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. You may think that you are blessed by God when you have a lot of numbers in your bank account. You may believe that you are blessed when you're out whining and dining. You may believe that you are blessed by God when your days are filled with laughter and mirth. You may believe that God's favor is upon you when men speak well of you. But Jesus said this, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. All of it is future. Blessed are you when men hate you, 
And when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, not now on earth. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. The Corinthians needed this rebuke. They needed to grow up. Maybe we do too. In light of what Paul says here to us, are we still little babies in Christ being fed with milk? rather than with meat, even at this late hour. That's the rebuke to the Corinthian church. Look, you should have been mature by now. You should have been eating meat by now. But you're still filled with divisions, filled with infighting, filled with all kinds of petty, childish behavior. Stop and be mature in Christ. Paul has given us a lot to think about. Howard will bring us this uh, chapter to full conclusion next week, and uh, we just pray that as we go through this week, think about it. Think about what Paul has said here to the Corinthians and to us. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we recognize that the Corinthians are very much like us in many ways. Lord, how, how often and how easy it is for us to look down our theological nose at others that we consider to be uh, weaker or Uh, less spiritual than us, and in the very act of doing that, we're showing that we are carnal. We are not spiritual. Lord, we think of how it's easy for us to get caught up in the the world and the things of the world and to be enamored with uh, riches and degrees and things that the world goes after when that's not the way you were on earth and it's not the way the apostles were either. And Lord, to even say that we're followers of Paul or Cephas or Apollos, we, we lie to ourselves when we think of how we live. We don't live like that. And so, Lord, we just pray that we might have a fresh look at how we should be living and that we might make the corrections that we need to make, that we would be able to, with uh, Christian maturity, be able to eat meat that you've provided for us and not continually be bottle-fed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.